1: Matt Boudreau. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 347 you're listening to. My guest today is live sound engineer Becky Campbell. Becky does front of house for major acts like the Indigo Girls and the Commodores. She's also the owner of B4 Media Production, where she produces corporate events, festivals, and live shows all over the U.S. She also freelances, teaches. She's got a lot of irons in the fire, and I'm really happy that she's here to chat with us. So, Becky Campbell, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about leaving room for your imagination. I don't want to sound like the old guy in the room, but I am the only one in this room right now, and uh, I am old. So, um, (laughs) kids, when I was your age, where am I going with this? Well, let me read you this quote from Albert Einstein. Imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. Yeah, I heard that, and I just really started to ruminate on the whole concept. And I thought, what was my childhood like? And quickly examining that childhood, I can tell you that, you know, we didn't have the same things that wa- that a kid does today. We didn't have the internet, obviously. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have social media. So. We spent our time, you know, in our own neighborhoods, and we swam, we rode our bikes. Uh, Star Wars came out when I was seven, so I spent an enormous amount of time playing with Star Wars action figures, letting my imagination run wild. Uh, We read, and we um, watched what little TV there was, and there, you know, really wasn't much until, of course, HBO came along, and that was, like, magical, but even that was, you know, limited in what it offered at the time. So I spent a lot of time, of course, just letting my imagination run wild. And of course, when music entered my life in a significant way, then I spent a large amount of time just listening to records and trying to understand what it was I was hearing and how the sounds that I heard were made. So today, you know, it's, it's a little bit different story. And it doesn't necessarily just pertain to kids it pertains to all of us the entirety of your day can be eaten up by a multitude of things not only the work that you do but also the distractions that are in your life and they can drive your attention one way or the other for for better or for worse and i met and had coffee with a new friend the other day we talked about how basically you know there's a lot of great stuff out there on youtube uh, all of our friends over at, you know, all the, all the typical places like Pyramix and Mix With The Masters, et cetera, how they offer some great knowledge, no doubt about it. However, there comes a time when it's okay to shut all that off and just let your brain go crazy. Go down the rabbit hole of thought and experiment with concepts in your own head instead of trying to always look for the solutions and the quick fix and the quick preset that you're gonna get out of watching a lot of this stuff, which uh, you know is fantastic. I definitely don't wanna say that, that what our friends over at those companies are doing is bad, but it's up to you to decide how much of it you take in. And that includes this podcast. I mean, you can hear the stories of many, many people I've talked to, but at some point you need to stop and think about your own story and think about what you're doing. And once again, back to imagination, let your imagination take a foothold in what you're doing because then you can create new ideas and new concepts and maybe you can eventually be the one on Pure mix or Mix with the Masters with fantastic new revolutionary ideas to show all of us, right? So you get my point. It's, it's basically, even as adults today with so much going on, it's almost like we're being dictated to on what, what is good, what is acceptable. But I would encourage you to stop, put it all down, take some time, I don't care how long it is, five minutes, an hour, a day, a week, a month, whatever it is you wanna do. Sit down and just let your brain go nuts, friends. Let it happen. The act of just sitting in silence and thinking through your own thoughts about your own identity, your career, et cetera, et cetera, I think is very powerful. And it really can open the mind up to new epiphanies that you might have about where you want to go in life, what you want to do with your career, or even about the project you're working on currently. You know, whether you're doing a mix or you're tracking a band or you're out doing some field recording or on the film set or or working on a video game, let that brain run wild and put the devices down for a little bit to let that happen. It may take a little getting used to and you're gonna go through some amount of withdrawal because many of us don't wanna let the, the, the Instagram, Facebook or social media world pass us by, right? It's okay, the world will continue on without us one way or the other. So there's a thought process and of course being me, there's an analogy here. That is, instead of trying to figure out how to get into everybody else's party, start your own party. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah. So that's it. Let that imagination run wild. Stop the input of information and start generating your own information out of your own brain and just see what happens. What's the worst that can happen, right? You come up with a great idea. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Becky Campbell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hey, Becky, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, thanks for having me, Matt.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Where are you talking to us from? Vero Beach, Florida. And it's raining, right?
0: Oh, yeah. That's what it does in the summertime around here. It's hot and sweaty and sticky and rainy. It's great for outdoor events.
1: And is that where you (laughs) live or are you just there right now for a gig?
0: No, that's where I live, actually.
1: Okay. What would you say that you do? What is your job title?
0: I'm a front of house engineer for touring acts, and I'm also a production manager.
1: And who are some of your clients that you typically deal with on a regular basis?
0: I'm out with the Indigo Girls right now, actually. And then I've also uh, worked with the Commodores and... Freelanced with pretty much any act that's come through Florida the last 20 years. So if if you've stopped in and done a one-off, I've probably met you.
1: <laughs> uh, interesting. And do you work at a series of venues there or is there one venue in particular?
0: I do. I work at quite a few actually uh, in Florida. I work for the city of Orlando as an A1. So anything they have major events like a Christmas tree lighting ceremony or 4th of July firework ceremony or any of those things, I usually A1 those for the city in their amphitheater downtown. And then I work at a little tiny theater in Stewart, Florida that has tiny little acts come through, probably about a 300 seat venue, really cool little old refurbished place. And then I also work at the King Center in Melbourne, Florida, which is an IATSI house. So I do my union stuff through them.
1: I was going to ask, is the work you do union-based?
0: Some yes and some not. Because Florida is not really a you-have-to-be-union kind of deal. It's a right-to-work state. So I do have my union card, but I can work anywhere as a freelancer.
1: As a union member, do you get any kind of pension in later years?
0: Uh, No. Okay. I I mean, I don't yet. I just started doing that maybe five years ago. So I I don't know that that would be...
1: Is that in your future?
0: Yeah. Yeah. If I've saved enough up to even afford like a month worth of rent, you know.
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) You know. So let's go, let's go to the beginning. Where did you grow up?
0: I grew up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Oh, the UP. About an hour from Canada. Yeah.
1: Right on. I have some listeners in the UP. What? And my wife's (laughs) from Michigan. So.
0: Yeah. Come on. Go blue.
1: Yeah. (laughs) When did audio come onto your radar? Were you a teenager or was it? did it come later in life?
0: I've always been into music. I've always been a huge listener of music. My dad and all my uncles were big fans of all music 70s and festivals and things like that. So they would go out and party and have fun and come back home and bring me records and tapes and all of those things. And I, I remember as a little kid just sitting with headphones on, listening to like Jim Croach, and America, and Three Dog Night, and stuff like that. And just fascinated with harmonies, even though I didn't even know what those were. And like, how in the world do they make this sound? And how do they, you know, and asking my dad questions. And he'd kind of pick it apart for me and let me know. So I've always kind of been into music every Cassette player I had, CD player, I ripped it apart, put it back together, tried to figure out how it worked, you know, and I could make it work and I could add more speakers to it if I wanted to and do all, I always fiddled with stuff like that. So I think it's kind of just always been with me, Mm -hmm. but I never really, I didn't go into school for it until I was 25. So Mm. I messed around a lot in my early twenties and and was kind of a screw up and kind of saved my life, I think a little bit.
1: So what were the steps that led up to you doing it professionally?
0: I did go to school for it. I lived in Florida at the time and uh, enrolled in Full Sail at 25 and thought, you know what? I'm going to go be a roadie and see what that entails. You know, And then got my hands on some gear and instantly was like, yep, this is it. And upon graduation, 9-11 happened about a week after I graduated college. So that was a good... Six months of no hiring and no work and no nothing. So I just pounded the pavement. I sent out 200 resumes. I just started going. At the time, there wasn't a lot of internet stuff going on, you know, internet was just kind of growing. So I just started stopping into places all up and down Florida and like, okay, are you guys looking for an engineer? You know, are you looking for someone to clean the deck or put gaff tape somewhere? Cause I can do those things, you know, and just started offering help to help places. Got into like a little dinner theater where I tended bar and also ran sound. So it was a super weird (laughs) situation. I'd run sound and then at intermission, run back behind the bar and make drinks and then run back out, do sound. That's how I got into it. And from there, just started building a resume.
1: What do you think, looking back on that time, what were the crucial things that you did to build that resume? What were you doing actively to try to grow your presence as an audio professional?
0: I think just that saying yes to everything that somebody asked me to do, and some days great things came out of that, and other t- other days I wish I would not have said yes, you know. But I think <laughs> I just started building by networking and meeting people as much as I could, and then just offering to help. Hey, I'll do this for two hundred bucks. I'll do that for two fifty or whatever, you know. And trying to attach myself to the people that that were really experienced and knowledgeable and willing to. Teach me as well. A couple guys in the Orlando area. I ended up working in a house of worship, following a guy around for about a year as his A2, and he would not let me touch his console, but he would let me do everything else. And I'd sit there during services with him with a whole rack of gear like to the right of me and just study these compressors for like hours. Like, what are they doing? And watching them. And he would answer any question I asked. So I didn't think I was learning a lot at the time. But by the time I took over his position, I didn't have questions. I knew exactly what I was doing. I wasn't afraid of the board. I wasn't afraid of the gear. It was a training that I wasn't expecting that I got. And so it seemed frustrating at the time for a year to just kind of follow this guy around. And then we were right across the street from a production house and an install house. So we'd go over and have coffee with those guys and they'd be fixing speakers or soldering something or whatever. And at any time I could ask them questions or they would say, Hey, do you want to learn how to build this rack? And I'm like, yep. So I I learned a whole lot of stuff just by being around and just hanging around different people.
1: Is your experience with other audio professionals or people in the industry that supports all of that, such as the people you mentioned doing installs, building racks, did you find that they were on average more open to offering advice or teaching or mentoring
0: at the time? Yeah. The guys that I ran into were, which was really cool because I know the experience for most women hasn't been that case, but they just kind of took me under their wing as like their little sister Hmm. and just taught me everything that I could, I could think about. I mean, yeah, they were, were, are, all of them are still around. Uh, they're all awesome. I can still call them at any time. You know, I still, do some install stuff with some of them. And we cross paths often. So yeah, we're all still friends. It's They're still mentors of mine. I can still call and ask any question. And they're great. They're amazing.
1: What would be your advice to others in a similar position when they encounter some of the people in, in this industry, which at first glance, I think, tell me if you agree with me on this. Some of the people in the world of sound can seem a little intimidating at first, right? <laughs> a little gruff. <laughs> sure you know the guys maybe they got big old beards and and they look a little gnarly and but it at the core a lot of them are just super sweet people who are really yeah. always willing to help but what would you what would you say is your advice to those coming up who are intimidated by asking questions and getting involved
0: one of the things that that i've always found which is real helpful is to kind of partner with somebody else on stage or wherever you're at that maybe is has more of an outgoing personality if the questions scare you to ask. Find somebody that's a friend that isn't afraid to ask the question and just kind of partner up with them like, hey man, let's try to figure this out together. I think for a real long time, there wasn't a lot of collaboration and now that's changing a lot. Like there used to be a whole group of Guys, I think that I came up with in that era, and even women, uh, the few of us that were out there, you know, who were like, hey, this is my job, my gig, and I'm not showing anybody how to do it or I'll lose my job. And that was kind of the mentality for a lot of years. And I think I've seen that change a lot, you know, where it's like, hey, I'm going to work myself out of a job and give you that one and I'll take another one. And I think that collaboration is now becoming like, like a thing, you know, that's, we're all trying to pass down the knowledge and share on Zoom. And I think, I think that being online for COVID has really helped that too, just kind of break off that old mold of we're not sharing our secrets and our toys, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. that seems to permeate throughout, not only the live sound world, but definitely in the studio world too. Like it used to be that way. People were very proprietary and they didn't want to share any knowledge, but I've seen that change too on, on the studio end of it. Speaking of which, did you have any desire to be in the studio?
0: I did. When I first started out, I think it was the pop bands and the boy bands and all that stuff were just coming out when I got out of college. So like Backstreet Boys, Sync, you know, Britney, all those guys. And they were a lot of them out of Orlando, you mm. know, and the whole Disney scene and everything. So we had opportunities to jump in studios and listen and just kind of observe. So I went and did that for about 12 hours one day and heard an artist sing off key for 12 hours. And um, I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I, I don't ever want to spend that much time hurting my ears. And <laughs> so I was like, well, maybe I'll try the live soundtrack instead of recording. And then right, the same week, I actually went and did a little festival with somebody and I was like hooked. I'm like, yep, this is live sound is it for me. And, you know, if they sing bad for an hour and a half, it's over (laughs) and I'm good.
1: (laughs) I've always been intimidated by live sound. I've always felt more comforted in the studio because I just have control over everything. And in the live Mm. sound environment, it's a little, it's a little scary. Did you have to get past any kind of scary scenarios that, oh, I'm going to make the PA feedback or, or this isn't working and everybody's looking at me? Kind of advanced. Oh,
0: yeah. I mean, that happens in live sound often, right? Because it's live. So sometimes wind can just be your worst enemy, or, you know, random things get set in certain places and all of a sudden you have feedback. You know, it's just, and sometimes not to anything that you've done, it just happens, you know, because sound waves. But I love that part of it. I love that trying to control the live beast and trying to figure out what makes everything work and not work. You know, as some of the case may be, I've fallen on my face quite a few times, you know, and been embarrassed and wanted to crawl under my console and all sorts of other (laughs) things, you know. But I think that just, for me, that's a driving force. If something goes wrong and I can't figure it out, it's a, okay, now I have to figure out what happened and how it works and how I can prevent that from happening again. I learned the hard way most of the time. That's just (laughs) kind of been my MO (laughs) for most of my life. So it works well in live sound.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's you You have to fail and and do things wrong to to really learn your lesson and get really good at it, right?
0: Yeah, and I think that's where you build troubleshooting skills too, which is essential in live sound for sure. At any given moment, something weird could happen. And it does. So it's either that defeats you or it makes you better. And I just kind of decided a long time ago, it's going to make me better.
1: At this point in in the timeline that we're talking about, when did you get to a point when you were making a living or at least paying the bills?
0: I would say I was probably five or six years into freelancing and working at houses of worship before I was like, okay, yeah, I can pay the rent without a roommate and I can pay for car payment and that kind of stuff. You know, I felt like I was making grounds and strides. You know, I wasn't getting phone calls to do like the little gigs anymore. It was more like, hey, you are the A1 and what's your rate? Instead of we're going to pay you 200 to come out and do this. People right. started asking like what my rates were and things like that. So I think it was probably five or six years into it.
1: How did you, or if if you're not comfortable answering that, Maybe giving advice to those who don't know how to set their rate, whether they're an A1 or an A2, and we should actually talk about those distinctions.
0: Sure. I think, well, for me, I just ask. I still do when I'm doing a project or something. You know, I have a pool of people that I ask like, hey, man, what would you charge to do this? Because each city is different too in each state. There's not like a across the board, like in live sound anyway, there's an average from like 250 to 450 to do a day gig or whatever, but it also depends. Are you production managing that and front of house? Those are two jobs. So are you getting paid for that? Are you just the A2? Are you a stage tech? There's kind of different tiers, but it's not written in stone anywhere for sure. But I think it's a, it's a matter of checking in with your people and saying you're not overshooting the client and you're not undershooting yourself either. I think that's a big big deal. A lot of people do when they first come out and they're like, oh, I'll do this for a hundred dollars. Well, then that I I could get on a soapbox about this. That like (laughs) undercuts other people that are trying to do this and maybe have been doing it for a year already and they deserve the 250. Now this guy out of school or girl out of school is coming and saying, I'll do it for free or I'll do it for a hundred dollars. That's not, that doesn't help the industry. It doesn't help other people. So to be able to communicate with each other and just ask like, Hey, what did you do? Or how much would you charge for this? You know, I think we're all pretty much in the same ballpark, but we've got to talk about it more.
1: Now I've discussed this with former WCA guest, Matthew Ruffino, who works over at the Today Show. He kind of explained a bit of the, the roles, A1, A2 then, but I'd just be curious to hear about it from you and to just kind of reiterate it to the audience.
0: To me, an A1 or front of house engineer, Usually A1 is like the term broadcast people use, you know, but front of house engineer is what they use in live sound. That's the person that is running the console for the act. That's the main audio engineer. And then an A2 would be the assistant or the person that's assisting them, whether that's on stage and you're assisting a monitor engineer you're probably putting batteries in packs and labeling things and making sure the artist gets the pack on them and their headsets the right way or their handhelds the right way or everything's labeled and laid out and gaff taped down and all of those fun things. You get to build mic stands and push gear and all the fun stuff. So that would be the difference between a monitor front of house or A1, A1 A2.
1: Is it a long road from an A2 to an A1 position for a lot of people?
0: Some people, Yeah. Some people just love, I mean, I love doing A2. I still do it in in some of these little theaters because it's fun to me. But I was probably maybe eight or nine years before I was doing the main gig in houses. I would always tech and I went into monitor engineer position first, which is taking care of the artists on the stage and making sure their monitors are in your monitors are working well and you're running the show for the artist. And then I went from there to front of house which uh, I never really wanted to do front of house. I didn't feel like that's where I was supposed to be. I was really good on stage. I knew the A2 position on stage well too, so I could do both. Hmm. And then the first time I got out in the house and mixed for the audience, I was like, "Oh, oh here we go. <laughs> this is cool." Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's it's like the dream come true, right? So so and then I realized, "Oh, there's a lot more I need to learn." So it's it's always I don't know. It's kind of where you feel the most comfortable, I think. I know A2s that have been A2s for 25 years because they just love it. That's their favorite thing
1: to do. Is there a big salary discrepancy between A1 and A2? A couple hundred dollars, yeah. Okay. Which is interesting because the way you explained it, doing all the running around on the stage, maybe doing monitors, to me, to me, that's a lot of hard work. Yeah. And it's a little scarier when you're dealing with monitors because I used to work at the Fillmore here in San Francisco when I first moved to San Francisco and just watching the interaction between the artists and the monitor engineer at that yeah. venue was a fascinating and uh, an interesting display of human behavior and how it can go <laughs> really, really bad.
0: Yeah, you have to have a level of patience as a monitor engineer that I would say I, I only possess every once in a while. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And in the age of in-ear monitors, it's a little more dangerous, is it not? Just because you could you could really screw somebody's hearing up.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, you're, you're working on in-ear monitors, but the monitor engineer also wears in-ear monitors at that point. So you're not going to do anything that is going to hurt your livelihood in your ears, right? So right. I hope whoever's doing in-ear monitors is also wearing monitors. Let's put it that way, because you're going to be safer
1: mm. that way. Are there difficult aspects to each job that that you still find difficult?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what you know and what you don't know. I'm I'm going into different venues and houses every night. We don't carry our own PA. So, you know, it depends on what the configuration of the PA is and what kind of the box is. And you go into one house, you've got a dmb rig in the air and jbl front fills and some off brand sub because that's what that venue could afford and you're like holy crap how do i make all this sound good that can be challenging mm-hmm. and it can be crazy hopefully like i'm advancing shows right now for the fall and i'm ha- i'm running across some of that stuff right now and just asking a lot of questions like okay hold on do you have this set up in an eq and those are challenging rooms for me and challenging days mm-hmm. Just because it's not all cohesive and it's not all done right, you know? So it's 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 a challenge to get all of that talking and sounding really good. And some mm-hmm. days it's just throw your hands up and do the best you can and say, Hey, that was a rough day and tomorrow will be better.
1: Well, and and you're talking about when you're advancing shows, are you talking about for the indigo girls or just for anybody? For anybody. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was gonna say, so the indigo girls, you know. Their legacy act mm-hmm. that's probably playing a certain level of venue. So I guess, you know, it can only be so bad, but it's still like challenging either way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. There's some venues that are even like the greatest ones in the United States that tons of people play in that the PA is just not hung in the right spot. There's nothing mm-hmm. you can do about that. And like some of us on the road, we talk about it. We know what the venues are and you do the best you can, but it's either something in that venue where it was old and built that way originally and there's nothing they can do to get around it. So you just kind of play with it. And then there's some where it's just like, for lack of a better word, a really bad, in- <laughs> I was going to say something and I'll be nice about it instead, but like a bad install team, you know, or they cut corners somewhere and it's just not done properly. I mean, I, I will throw one under the bus because it's a friend of mine and, and everybody knows this venue, but like Thomas Wolfe in Asheville, North Carolina, has had a weird hung PA for a lot of years and they just fixed it. I'm super excited about it because oh. we're gonna be there sometime. And but they're in the backyard of DMB and they had a DMB rig, but it wasn't hung right. But it wasn't DMB's fault and it wasn't the venue's fault. It was the way the venue was designed originally. They couldn't put a hang point in the right spot. So after a few years, they fixed it.
1: You mentioned DMB. What what is I'm not familiar with that company.
0: Dmb Audio and Technica is It's a speaker manufacturer, but their DMB is is probably in the top four or five of speakers.
1: Ah, shows you how much little time I spend in that <laughs> in that area of of the audio profession.
0: Our live people would know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> it's kind of like when I interviewed former WC guest Mark Kilborn about game sound. Game the game sound people were like, it's clear this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's asking good <laughs> questions. So. Thank you for for clarifying.
0: Yeah, no problem.
1: So do you bring things with you like racks of outboard gear or particular mics to get across as much of the sound that the artist you're working with wants to get across?
0: Yes. Yep. So we carry all of our own everything except, I mean, we have consoles and everything that we carry. The only thing we don't carry is PA. So right down to cables and mic stands and everything, we carry all that.
1: Oh okay so just to be clear you actually do use your own consoles you're just depending yep. on the venue's arrays and and monitor system and
0: yep so we do fly out like one off dates too and you know smaller like private concerts and things like that too when that happens sometimes we don't bring our own gear so I'll have to advance the show and ask do you have this certain type of microphone or this or that and then we have extra microphones that The girls specifically use that we will bring with us on fly dates and like a little rig that we can pack and fly with for in-ear monitors and things like that. But I will have to work on whatever console is in the house. So there's times when I've walked into a venue and I'm like, crap, I haven't worked on that console in 10 years. <laughs> like I have done forgot how to do, you know. And to the house guys, knowledge, like I'm I'm excited sometimes to meet the house guy and see what their knowledge level is. And hey, can you teach me in the next 10 minutes and refresh me on this console? And it, everyone that we've run across have been really great at doing that. And because I work in small venues here, I run into that a lot where people walk in and be like, Oh, you have a Midas Pro 2. I have not run one of those. Or you have a Digico SD7. I haven't run one of those. Can you help me? I've got a file or I don't have a file. Can you build one? So I think that's really helped me working in small venues on different gear and stuff like that over the years to be able to just walk into a place and and jump on a console. And I have files too that I've built for different consoles that I keep on a flash drive just in case I might need to pull something up.
1: Yeah. So I'm a studio guy primarily, but I got roped into doing live sound for this uh, jazz workshop. You know, it was like a week-long jazz workshop, and at the end of the week, there was a show. Went from like 4.30 p.m. to like 9 p.m., just band after band after band after band. Mm -hmm. So I walk in the week before to see what they've got, and there's an analog console there, and there's some kind of Behringer digital console, and I took a look at both, and I was like, well... (laughs) I would say the smart thing for me to do would be to use the analog console because I can get my hands on the faders, my hands on the EQs, and I can quickly move. I don't know the menus on this thing, and it's going to take me the week to figure it out. So how does the up-and-coming audio professional deal with that? Because if you walk into a venue and there's a digital console there that you have no clue on how to use,
0: Mm -hmm. what do you do? Hopefully you've talked to somebody ahead of time. So you know what console you're walking into. There's a plethora of training videos on YouTube for every console anymore, which is super easy to get to and learn and, and at least get an overview on it. And console's console, right? So it all has a gain. It all has a pad. It has a phase. It has whatever, four parametric EQ or whatever, all the way down to channel strip. Everything's the same as it was in digital world just might be named a little different or in a different location than what what you're looking for i've literally walked in on consoles and could not figure out where to plug my headphones in like i actually had to youtube that on one console cuz i was like for the love of god where <laughs> where's my headphone and my solo like i just couldn't find it and it was in a youtube video that i found and i was like cool up and running for the 5 minutes before the show i'm youtube and like where in the world <laughs> Aren't are that amazing
1: that, that we we can do that nowadays? Yeah. Uh, so the luxury yeah. of that.
0: And and then, you know, use your use your resources. I mean, if you got a buddy who runs sound, call them. Ask them like, hey, do you have any idea how to run this on a Digico? Or text them, you know, if they don't know, can you refer me to somebody who does? There are a ton of production resource houses all over the US too that are really cool about if you call them up and say, Hey, I've never run a Behringer X32. Any idea how I do it, they're going to say, I got one and you can come in for an hour or whatever and play on the one in the shop. I do that stuff a lot just to refresh my mind and call somebody in Orlando and be like, hey, man, I just did that a few months ago before I went back out because I hadn't touched a console in a year, over a year. So I was like, hey, man, I'm heading out. Here's what my console is. I put it on Facebook. Like, does anybody have access to a Digico SD10? And I got four or five hits like, yeah, man, you can come up to the studio or you can come here. You can, okay, cool. And I think you got to reach out. You got to go after it, read the manuals, do all the things to get well-versed in in where you're going.
1: It's too bad there's not a virtual way to do that, like an emulation of a console on a web page where you can go and say, this is how you route this to this. And you could virtually push a button.
0: Most of the digital consoles now have an offline editor that you can download from the website and do that. And you can save it as a file too on your flash drive. Oh. That, that's what I do when I'm I'm building shows.
1: I did this show once, once again, getting roped into things, saying yes. A friend of mine, another former guest of the show, Ben Bernstein, he reached out and he said, "Hey, there's a live stream event in San Francisco for this guy and I'm spacing on his name, but he he played guitar with the uh, Roger Waters of Pink Floyd." So I said, "Well, okay, I guess." And he goes, "Well, I picked you to do this cuz I knew you wouldn't screw it up." He kind of he gave me the good old friendly <laughs> pressure there. So I show up to the uh, I show up a day before the gig. We go over the console. It's like uh, I think it's a Midas, multiple menus. We take the input list. We figure it all out. And I'm like, okay, okay, cool. I got it. It's all set. No problem. I come to the gig. House manager says, "Hey, did you get the new input list? Because everything changed." And I just like I could <laughs> feel like my heart just hit my stomach and all the blood rushing out right. of my head. And I was like. No, I didn't get that, but I should probably go over that. And it's, I had to on the fly just quickly, like you have to, as I'm sure you would agree in those pressured situations, you have to calmly just be a clear thinker about Mm -hmm. signal flow and you just can't panic. Otherwise you freeze up.
0: Yeah. That's, that's actually great advice. It, It took me forever to learn that, like, hold on a minute, pause, take a deep breath when something weird goes wrong, it feels like the entire world is sitting on you and you're just like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And time is like, yeah, you've got 10 minutes till someone's on stage. So I try to remind myself, take a minute, just take a minute to get your headspace back in the right spot. And like you said, think signal flow. You know how this goes, right? How it goes in, how it comes out, what process it goes through to get to your channel, all that stuff. So Take a deep breath and just you got this.
1: I learned it in the studio when you know there's a band and I can't get the patch bay to work and I'm calling the studio owner going back years. So I had to take that experience and relay it to this most recent experience and just go, okay, everything's gonna be okay. Let's just figure it out. So yeah. But I'm sure someone like you who has far more experience in the live sound arena than I do has mastered that. But do you do you ever have your moments of panic these days?
0: Sometimes, sure, yeah, when something goes, "Hey, Wiry, I had a show actually, like a month ago, where all of a sudden, I just lost all my inputs. I was right in the middle of sound check, and I lost all my inputs. I'm like, I have no idea to this minute what that was, but I just called up to the stage real quick and I said, "Hey, can you hold everybody? I'm just gonna." Reload my file and see. I've got some weird stuff, like some weird anomaly going on out here. It was like I just lost all the patch for some reason. So I just reseated the cables and recalled the show, and it came back. And then I was nervous for the next three hours that that was going to happen during mm. za- during the actual show, but it didn't, and that's okay. Yeah, that was a really weird one, but you know, stuff happens. <laughs>
1: They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with sampling makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. Sampley.app. Check it out. At this point, how long have you been doing front of house?
0: I have been doing front of house
1: about 20 years. And you say you like doing both A1 and A2 jobs, but what's your preference? What's your favorite?
0: I would say right now my favorite is front of house.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I could see why. That's, that's thrilling. I know this is a silly question, but is there an A3 position?
0: they would probably be considered an av tech or your your patch tech or, okay. or or someone like that so they patch everything on stage and make sure it's all taped down and that would be your your tech position
1: are you in the practice of recording the shows that you you do front of house for
0: some of them yeah it just depends on what the artist wants you know if they don't want it recorded then i don't really bother too much about it if i've got time i'll throw up my daw and record just for my own purposes to listen back and just, I do that every once in a while just so I check myself and see where I'm at. Cause you do the same show every night, night after night after night. Sometimes you can get a little lazy, or I can anyway. And just kind of write it. So I want to stay sharp. I'll listen back and be like, oh, you you missed that. You missed the beginning of that intro or your reverb was a little too wobbly or whatever. And I do that just for my own purpose to stay sharp. But if we are recording like for an album purpose or something like that, you know, usually I'll have redundant recording capabilities, you know, and and different things. And then that's all kind of in a rack somewhere. And I just have to make sure it's ready to roll.
1: Let's talk about. Probably not a fun topic, hearing protection and longevity in the business. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I have a lot of thoughts on it, especially the older I get. I'm appalled a little bit by some of the stuff I'm hearing lately where people are just really running things way too loud. It's 135 decibels for your concert. like That's loud. That's dangerously loud. If you're standing in that for sound check and then two hours a show, that's probably four hours you're standing there and you're creating hearing damage for yourself and that concerns me for a lot of engineers coming up because they have that mentality of oh yeah louder is better bigger is better you know which I love loud music I love to feel it in my chest I love to hear a shredding guitar at the top peak of my hearing but even if I go to a live show like I always bring earbuds with me or hearing protection and I'll listen for the first hour or maybe the last hour and I'll put hearing protection in the rest of the time because that's even if the live show would sound better that way, I'll keep the 15 dB pad in my ear for my career. Yeah, uh, It's worth it for me.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure that it's inevitable that you will go home at the end of the night when you lay your head down on the pillow, there's going to be a little bit of, you know, some kind of tone mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going you're gonna to hear. I know that those of us who've been in, in the world of audio for a long time have it in varying degrees. Mm-hmm. So, Does anybody ever complain, hey man, it's just not loud enough. You got to turn it up.
0: Yeah. there. I mean, some people will. Mm. I take complaints a little different, I think, because I worked in houses of worship forever and everyone likes to complain there about the volume. (laughs) Houses of worship are a little more vested in everything sound wise and video wise, you know, and everybody thinks it's part of their deal to tell you what to do. So I got complaints for quite a few years in places like that and just kind of took them with a grain of salt. So When people come up and say something like a live show that they've bought a ticket for, I usually try to pay attention to that because it could be something that's legit. I had one a month ago where this guy from the left side of the field came up and he was like, you know, your delay tower back there sucks. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And uh, he walked away. Well, there happened to be a tech in the front of house with me. And I said, could you just run back there and listen just in case? And then he radioed me from back there and he said, it's not on. And I was like, what? Because it was on during sound check. And so he's like, hang on, I'll check it out. And someone had stepped on the cable and pulled it out. So that guy was a legit complaint. I wasn't backed by the delay stack. So I didn't know, you know, but to be able to send someone out there and check it made the experience for everyone out in that left side of the far field much better. Had I have just taken that as a sound complaint and not done anything with it, that would have been a horrible experience for that whole side of the field. So I think there's a little bit to investigating complaints and then some, you learn over time who's legit and who's not, right? <laughs> and who's just complaining for complaining's sake. So yeah. I try to take it how it is, just with a grain of salt and, and investigate
1: if I can. Hmm. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the business side of it. Over the years, I'm assuming that you've kind of developed a financial philosophy of how to maintain a standard of living for yourself and- one thing that we talk about on this show is like some people just, they get their money and they immediately go out and spend it on new gear or go into debt over the gear. In your particular case, as a, as a, as a live sound person, I guess that, you know, the gear is already there. So what would be your advice to other live sound professionals about money management and how to maintain a, a strong standard of living or at least have longevity?
0: I feel like in the last 10 years, I've probably learned that more than I had did in the first beginning of it. You know, in my twenties and thirties, I was pretty much like everyone else, like, let's just spend the money. And as you get older, obviously start thinking down the road, like, oh crap, I don't want to be 85 and welcoming people to Walmart. So you know, let's get let's get this crack. In. so, like I've talked to a financial investor. I have a CPA who does all my books because to me, it's worth the expense to have a CPA because I do so much freelance and I rent gear and I do, like, I have a side business and I'm doing all these different things. And for me to keep up with that tax wise is ridiculous. Like, I can't, it's not my strong suit. Someone pay someone who is <laughs> whose strong suit it is to do that and then help me, you know, along those same lines. So, talking to a financial planner and saying, hey, where, where can I go if this is what I make this year? And what can I do? And how can I invest? And what should I save? So I have a retirement plan in place and I'm working on all that stuff right now too. So it's it's kind of an ongoing process for me as I'm learning as I go, but talking to other people in the industry and how they've done it and what they're doing. And we're in a weird industry that doesn't really teach people that. And it doesn't have this like net you know, like, hey, you can have an IRA and you can do this and you get, you know, so I think the more we talk about it and the more we learn from one another, it's really going to help.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. One of the things that I learned from from my tax person is setting up a solo 401k, which I guess the way it works is, is you have your own, you have your own company, right? Because, you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure you have, what's the name of your company?
0: B4 Media Production.
1: So B4 Media Productions, you're an employee of that. And Mm -hmm. you can do employee contributions and you can do B4 media contributions to this solo 401k. Something I encourage everyone to investigate or ask somebody who's more financially qualified to really get into the weeds with this. But yeah, that's one of the things that I've learned over the years is to have that or have a, um, there's also a SEP account, a self-employed pension, I guess is is what Mm -hmm. SEP stands for. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, Financial literacy for sound professionals in general is definitely something I think all of us should be talking about. And I really am glad to hear you say that because it's a bit of an unknown for a lot of us. We just think, yeah, hey, I like sound. I'll do live sound. I'll do studio sound. I'll get gigs. But where does the money go in the end?
0: Yeah. And what happens when your hearing does start to go? What's your plan for that? I think that's stuff that people don't talk about a lot in our industry. Like eventually you do get old and your hearing does go away, like your eyesight. I mean, (laughs) everything else, you know, it's like the rest of us, right? We start deteriorating at some point. What's your plan when that happens? You know, are you just out of a job at 60, which is fine if you're set up financially. And if you're not like, what's your plan for that? And I think Our industry has never really talked about that kind of stuff. And we're starting to, I think the pandemic has been a real big eye opener to a lot of people about that too. I mean, I know for me, I was like, holy crap. I'm so glad four or five years ago, I got a CPA and I started doing some of these things because I was able to make it through the last year and a half without being completely broke,
1: you know, and I'm not,
0: I'm not in a great financial place right now coming out of it, but I'm not horribly, I mean, I'm not bankrupt. I didn't have to sell my company. So those are huge things when some of my buddies have had to do that. So it's it's hard, but I think talking about it is definitely helpful.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the the live sound industry, no doubt, was hit incredibly hard mm-hmm. with COVID. So, yeah, boy, if, listeners, if you're listening, please, be serious about the money management because it's it's so crucial to survival when unexpected things, I mean, who in a million years would have thought we would have had a pandemic? That's like, that was the last thing on my mind that would have happened. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Speaking of which, a good transition health-wise on the road as an audio professional, there's mm. a lot of temptation to eat like crap on the road, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Oh, yeah. Eating well and exercise, you know, it's it's hard to maintain that focus. Is that something that that you think about or or focus on at all? Or is it is it a challenge or
0: I'll be honest with you. I haven't really thought about it. I'm a giant foodie and I love all the weird food and the good stuff in the every little restaurant you can think of everywhere. But you know, as you get older, I started like looking into that too. Just like oh, holy crap, you know, I'm a certain age and way up in my forties now. And it's like Have I been taking care of my health? Am I taking care of my heart? I've never really been one that's like going to go out and do a lot of heavy drinking every night. I don't drink on school nights. That's kind of my, that's kind of my MO because I did in my twenties and I did it all the wrong way and my body paid for it a lot. And so now I've cut that out, you know, where it's like, you guys want to go out and party tonight? Nope. My day off's not tomorrow. So I take care of that because it takes care of my ears. It takes care of my heart. It takes care of my lungs and my liver and whatever else, you know? And I need that to keep going. So I also uh, added some yoga in last year, which was something I hadn't done. I've always worked out and lifted weights and stuff, but I see a chiropractor regularly. I go to a masseuse regularly. Those are the things I do to take, take care of myself. And then instead of getting the burger, I get the salad or whatever. And I just kind of started changing that a lot. Like we do a lot of smoothies for lunch, which I'm great with because I'm usually working during lunch and setting up a console and a good old healthy smoothie with my protein shake, you know, so my muscles stay good. It's something I started implementing a couple of years ago, you know, and I've realized it's so much easier to lift things and not be in pain. And I don't want to walk like half the people I knew coming up, you know, where they're like sideways and they're walking down the road because they've lifted 700 pound road cases their whole life. Like all of us kind of have that little hunchback thing going on. And oh yeah. my chiropractor's like right off the bat, what do you do for a living? You're all hunched over. And I was like, that's kind of what I do for a living. I, I hunch, hunch over a console all day.
1: <laughs> I guess it's, it's a, it sounds like it's a, just a, a major mindset change, you know, from yeah. it sounds like you have a, a history of maybe doing things, not exactly the way you do them now at some point, did you have some kind of like awakening of health and wellness and all of that?
0: I feel like I'm right in the middle of it still. I'm not the greatest health connoisseur by any means. And uh, I can always lose a little weight. Like, couldn't we all? Right. But
1: that's what the doctor always says.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it's, I'm not the greatest person to even talk about health. I'll be honest with you, you know, but I've got good friends who are, and they I've got a friend of mine who's a monitor engineer and she's also a yoga instructor. And she's like, some of the things that might help your back is to start stretching every day and do this, get on a nap, go find this, you know? So I took her advice, you know, and I started doing it and she's not kidding. Like I feel so much better and it gets me in a good headspace too, when I'm able to do that in the morning. And it's not easy to do yoga on a bus, but you can do it outside. You can get all your stretches in. So I try to stretch for a half hour every morning and get all that going before we even unpop the trailer, because God, when I don't, <laughs> you know, living on a bus and, and living in a little bunk while you're sleeping, there's no not a lot of room to stretch out in there. We're all getting up in years, you know. We get up and we all kind of moan and groan and grunt when we sit down and stand up and all those things. So we're all kind of finding that we're starting to add a walk in the morning or stretching in the morning with each other, doing those kind of things. So it's kind of fun to start going that route, I guess. So I'm hoping it stays in my brain that way.
1: <laughs> and we're almost out of time, but I do want to talk a little bit about work-life balance with you in terms of, you know, I, I realize COVID has played a major factor, but generally when when things are rolling and, and the work is there, how do you handle relationships with significant others or friends or family without burning yourself out or without upsetting everybody around you?
0: Like I've said before, like I learned the hard way. So I learned that all the hard way. I I love my job. I love to work. I can say yes every day to something and be busy. And I just, I started realizing probably about 15 years ago that that was not healthy. I started having panic attacks mm. and just stressed out all the time. And I went to a doctor and just started talking through it. And the doctor was like, I think your stress level is beyond comprehension right now. Like Mm. what you do for a living, you're through the roof. And she's like, you need to learn how to enjoy life and have some self-care. I'd never heard the term. I didn't know what any of that was, you know and the balance between having friendships and like hanging out with my nieces and nephews. They all are little munchkins and I love them dearly, but most of them will just be honest with you. Like adults won't. And one of them looked at me and was just like, how come you're always gone and we never see you? And it just like hit me in a really weird (laughs) way, you know? And I was like, I'm back. I hang out. And she's like, but when you're here, you're on your computer and you're on your phone and you just don't play with us. And I thought, good Lord, I don't want, that to be like the legacy i leave with the kids i want to be the cool aunt so i started trying to figure out like where i could put time for myself and for others and that meant saying no a lot to things that i may want to do and that's okay so when i'm home i'm usually home for about 2 weeks and i try to find times in those two weeks where I can just take a day or two sometimes you know it's running a business on the side while you're out on the road there's a lot going on but I will just like Tuesday I'll give you a prime example tomorrow is a day off for me I have already told everyone that called me today and everybody else like tomorrow is my day off I'm hanging out with the family if you call me I'll get back to you Thursday like I just have to put that boundary in place for myself and I have to tell people ahead of time and then afterwards, hey, man, sorry, I wasn't able to get a hold of you. You know, you and I kind of went through that doing, <laughs> trying to get this podcast going. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah. Too. Yeah, I
1: understood. Yeah.
0: And it was just a matter of it's okay to say no. I hate with a passion to disappoint people, but I have come to realize it's okay. They're still going to love you anyway. Just say no when you can say yes when you can.
1: You know, I mean, we're, we're lucky. We love what we do. And I know that... There are those who work jobs that all they could do is think about, what time is it? Okay, I'm out of here. I'd love to see some scientific study that shows that, are we getting some kind of dopamine rush from doing gigs? Yeah. Is there something going on there physiologically that we don't 100% understand that causes us to be like, okay, hold on a sec. Let me just, I, I got to say yes to this gig on this email. Yeah. And, you know, you've got your phone and... You just don't you don't want to put it away. You don't want to let the 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 gig train stop.
0: Yeah. And I think there's some of that too, is just how we were brought up, right? You say yes to everything, you take all the gigs, you do all the things because you're climbing the ladder. So by the time you get to the top of the ladder, you're running at that pace as if you did for 10 years going up it. And it's just it's it's addictive. It's definitely an addictive thing.
1: Yeah, I would agree. A hundred percent addictive. And sometimes, I don't know if you're this way, but sometimes I am guilty of just trying to take on too many gigs. It's just like, oh, yeah, I could do that. I'll squeeze that yeah. into here and do that.
0: Yep. I do that all the time. And it's hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And then you realize, hey, I've been home for two weeks. I haven't seen anyone I love or connected with them because I've been working the whole time I've been home too. So I started doing that and peeling back a little bit and realizing, you know what, it's okay if I don't make $500 tomorrow. I'll make 500 the next day because it's worth that trade-off for me to look at my niece and say, you know what? I'm going to come to your play. I'm going to invest in you a little bit. Like my uncle's invested in me or my aunt invested in me. And I want to be that for the next generation too. I want to be able to have five minutes to jump on a mentor call with someone and say, you know what? Here's a woman who's been doing this 20 years because I didn't know any women until I was 11 years in. So if I don't have that kind of time to invest in the next generation, what am I doing? Right. Just invested in myself. And that's pretty selfish.
1: Final round of questioning. How, when you're on a long trip, a long gig on the road for two, three, four weeks, how do you manage your life at home remotely? (laughs) Oh, is that the magic question?
0: Yeah, that's the magic (laughs) question there. I don't know. If you can figure it out, let me know. Sometimes I feel like I have split personalities out there, but I do have a really good home-based team that's here that can pick up for me. I have a lot of freelancers on my freelance list. We actually did a gig when I was, I just got out on the road in the end of May and I had a festival that was kicking off here. And I was freaking out because it was the first time I wasn't running the whole festival and I had to put it in someone else's hands. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to pull the trigger and it's all you guys, you know? So I prepped all the gear with another friend of mine and had it all laid out, ready to go. And I was like, here's the key to the warehouse, go get it, make it happen. And let me know how it goes, because I'm going to be mixing the three days you're doing this. And I probably can't take phone calls or if I can, I'll do the best I can. I ended up actually calling them because I got nervous. I didn't get a call. And they were like, dude, it's freaking awesome. Everything's going great. We're doing wonderful. I just felt so proud of them and so excited about it. So I think just being able to trust that whoever's at home and whatever's going on at home, they can handle it too. you mm-hmm. know. And I, I just had to take the control out of that for a little bit. And then there's times when I'm doing a sound check and I've got a phone call and I'm like, I'll have to call you right back. I'm sorry, but I'm in the middle of something else or I'm sending two emails and text messaging and Zooming all at the same time. <laughs> like, okay, hold on, hang on. I got confused. I got, you know, so it's, there. there's some of that. I've advanced shows in my bunk and been on phone calls in the back lounge at 1230 at night, you know, trying to run something here while I was on the road, you know, so there, there's days and my days off on the road are usually spent invoicing people and doing things like that in the morning. And then I I do a hard stop at noon on my days off so I can have a day off where whatever city I'm in.
1: And most of everything you talked about, there was kind of business oriented on the personal front. Is it hard to maintain a house and keep an eye on things when you're on the road?
0: You know, I'm single. I have a business and that's kind of my baby. So, I don't okay. have any kids or or a husband or anything. So, I can't really speak to that side of it other than bills and and the normal things that come up at your house like my AC broke. Stuff like that where you just you make it work best you can and everything I do is online. Every bill I have is online. I have no paper trail <laughs> of anything. So, I can do it from my phone. I can take care of whatever I need to online and remotely and so that that tends to work out well. And I actually have a really amazing neighbor who picks up my Amazon packages and takes care of some things like lets the AC guy in to fix it, you know, and stuff like that. So so I've got a pretty nice base of friends and people at home too, that can help out with stuff like that. And I think you kind of need that too.
1: Yeah. And I swear, this is the final question. What about health insurance? How do you handle that?
0: (laughs) Yeah. that's It's a rough one. I'm fortunate enough that I own a business and I'm able to get a health insurance break through stuff like that and employee break, but for years I haven't had health insurance. I mean, I I went 14, 15 years without health insurance because self health insurance is really expensive to do mm. just by yourself. And and when there's no business, even Affordable Care Act sometimes is pretty steep when you're climbing the ladder in our business. It's not worth it for some people, or they just can't afford it. And I can't blame them. I couldn't. So I think that's a, man, we could talk for hours about that. It's, <laughs> that, it's hard. We could do a know? whole it's, it's podcast about
1: health insurance and audio professionals.
0: Yeah. I pretty much pay everything out of pocket now. I don't go through insurance because it's it's pretty much the same for me either way.
1: Wow. Well, where can people find out more about you?
0: I am all over the internet. Becky Campbell. It's B-E-C-K-I-E if you're looking for me. Um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the places and B as in the letter B and then four is in the number media production all over on there too.
1: Excellent. I'll include links in the show notes, LinkedIn, wherever else (laughs) in case people want to, you know, investigate or reach out or, you know, have a comment or whatever.
0: And then I'm also a chapter head for the sound girls organization. So you can find me through soundgirls.org. also. Oh uh, yeah. Love
1: sound girls. I'll definitely put a link to that. As we were talking about before the call started, we were praising uh, Carrie at Soundgirls for her efforts.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big part of my heart is to see the next generation of audio women conquer and be bigger and better than we were. So I love that organization. It's uh, I'm all wrapped up in it.
1: Well, hey, Becky, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I know it was tough to get you on, but I appreciate you uh, following up with me and uh, carving some time out.
0: No worries. Thanks so much for having me on, Matt. I appreciate it. You take care. You
1: Becky Campbell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you like the show, you know what I'm about to say. Is head on over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or write something up kind of nice. You know, if you're a longtime listener, I assume you like the show. So do us a solid. Head on over there and write something up that your parents would approve of. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plough and the editing Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top of the show with his lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.